Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, back with another episode. And we will call this one a unique episode because we have done this in the past before, Mike, speaking with a chair umpire. And uh, for this week, we have Maria Chichak. Yeah, gold badge umpire. She's worked three different Olympic Games, worked the past 10 WTA finals, as well as numerous Davis Cup, Billie Jean Cup ties as well. And this past summer, uh, most notably became the first female chair umpire to work the men's final at Wimbledon as well. So we got one of the very best on the pod uh, this week. And I was pretty happy back during the uh, uh, National Bank Open this summer in Montreal when I was advised that this was the umpire we were going to chat with because I think uh, tennis fans pretty much all over the world would agree that, that she's right up near the top, if not the top umpire in the business these days. Yeah, certainly. And a recognizable face. And um, I was reminiscing on the time that we did chat a couple of years ago with uh, Eva Azdaraki more. And I remember greatly enjoying that conversation. It's just a different perspective on the game. And I, I think chair umpiring has of course, changed over the past years specifically. And, and you get into this interview about the change in technology, um, but they still play a vital role in kind of keeping the rhythm of a match going. And uh, I, I loved her commentary throughout this interview, to be honest. Uh, well, thanks. I, uh, I, I thought she, she gave us some great stuff and we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, chair umpires, to me, I've always found them pretty fascinating because it's a role that I would never under any circumstance ever want to even try. Um, so much respect for them for being up there and having everyone on TV watching, uh, everyone in the crowd, the two players, of course. And, you know, if you do a good job, basically it goes unnoticed. But if you make the smallest mistake or, or you know, even a larger mistake, it gets blown up and everybody sees it. So that's a lot of pressure. We talk about the pressure that athletes feel when they step out on the court. It's no different with chair umpires. And uh, so I, I recall personally, it was uh, 2008 when I started covering the sport and I was at the uh, Lake Mason Classic in DC, uh, now the city open. And I made a request to speak to a chair umpire and the, the media person on site was like, oh, well, we've uh, never received that kind of request before. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if we can accommodate that or not, but it worked out. And I spoke with Cedric Mourier, uh, who was one of the top umpires back in the day. And ever since then, I've always liked putting in these these requests just to get that different vantage point. And I think it's certainly caught on. You see other chair umpires being interviewed on different, uh, whether it be tennis podcasts or by the WTA ATP as well. And uh, yeah, it's nice to see their personality and get to know them a little bit better. And uh, I think we definitely got that with uh, Maria Chichak uh, in this one here. Yeah, certainly. And, and you kind of forget that they have kind of similar lives to these athletes because they are traveling year round they they have that same type of schedule week to week sort of grind and it takes a lot of patience and focus and as you said it's certainly not a job that um, very many people could do so I, I commend everybody who can do it and especially at the highest level I think without further ado let's uh, listen in on your interview from back at the uh, NBO in Montreal with chair umpire Maria Chichak. Happy to welcome today to Matchpoint Canada, one of the most recognizable chair umpires in professional tennis, and that's because of such a, a great job that she's always doing at calling the matches. Maria Chichat, thank you so much for taking some time with us today on the podcast. I'm happy to be here, happy to uh, be able actually to talk to you. Uh, this is a, I got to admit, this is the first time I'm doing it this way because uh, 
I've never done it before, but uh, looking forward. I, I feel like I'm becoming a pro, so I think you'll get used to it really quickly here. Um, let me start off by asking you, how did you um, first get started as an umpire and, and how long have you been doing this for now? Well, I, uh, I started when I was 15 um, and actually started, actually started in a fun way that uh, in my club, they needed, uh, organizers needed uh, some officials that are going to be doing uh, satellite events at that time, a long time ago, satellite events. And uh, they just asked me if I'm uh, willing to go to a level one school to pass the exam and to actually help them out. And uh, that's how it all started. Originally, you were a, a tennis player, a tennis fan, I would imagine. Yeah, I, yeah. Originally, I was a tennis player. And what are some of the bigger challenges of the role of umpire? I mean, when, when you're doing your job right, we barely notice you guys in the chair, of course, but there are tense moments. What, what are the most challenging ones for you? Well, if you don't see us, if we are invisible, means that we're doing a good job, <laughs> to, put it, to put it this way. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, the part of, this, uh, part of this role is that we are seen, that we need to be seen, especially these days where uh, when uh, everything is televised, streamed, uh, one way or the other, you're out there. Uh, toughest part of this role, um, I don't know. I really, I can't, at some matches, toughest part uh, is, uh, let's say long matches, long matches, it requires for you long uh, concentration. That's why you need to keep on refocusing, refocusing, refocusing. But uh, other things, I mean, they just come with the role that you have and I don't really take uh, things as hard or easy, you know, for me, everything's the same and I take everything in the same way. That comes with experience, I would imagine. Do you feel you've sort of evolved as an umpire as you've grown in your career? Uh, yes. Like uh, the same principle as tennis players, you know, the higher rank, uh, the higher, higher in ranking they, they, they get, they evolve in, in, that, in their game. It's the same for us. The higher uh, uh, we go, we have to evolve as well. You've worked all kinds of matches, obviously, from qualifying to finals of the biggest tournaments in the sport. Athletes often feel more pressure in the bigger moments. Is, is that also true with chair umpires? Uh, Possibly, yes. Yes, but it as well depends on the match that you're actually doing, players that you're doing. Um, but yes, the round that you're doing uh, brings an extra element in. So yes, quality match versus final, is a, it's, it's just a different level. It's different. Uh, you still have players, you still have game, you still need to focus everything's the same, but now you have uh, different elements of the TV, of, uh, of the spectators, uh, tight match, uh, long match. So it's, I mean, it's all part of it. So you just get used to it and uh, you keep on rolling. One of those big moments for you was earlier this summer when you became the first female chair umpire to call the men's championship final at Wimbledon. So congratulations for you, well-deserved and, and I would say long overdue, but that's just my opinion. What did it mean for you personally and, and what impact do you think that has on other female officials who are out there? Uh, first, uh, thank you for this. Um, I've been honored. I didn't dream this in the craziest dreams because this is something you really don't even uh, kind of dare to dream. There are, other, there are other colleagues of mine. There are great officials, uh, male and female, 
and uh, I've been really honored to to have this role for the first time for a female official in a history. But um, as well as I said, there are so many other great umpires that are out there. So I'm not the only one. Well, you did a fantastic job. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the technological uh, evolution of your role and specifically maybe get your views on the electronic line calling system that's being used both in Montreal and Toronto right now. Uh, I'm guessing this is a welcome addition for chair umpires. Uh, it's uh, it's technology, you know, like uh, like uh, uh, in every other sports or in everyday life, we we tend to use more and more technology. So yes, I, it, it it's kind of a progress that we uh, just took, you know, because I mean everything is evolving in, in in this way. As I said, even in everyday life, so why not? try this as well. Yeah, I just feel like watching the matches here where I'm based in Toronto, there's no arguments anymore when it comes to a challenge because the challenge is only going to show you what's already been confirmed by the system. Yeah, correct. I would imagine umpires in John McEnroe's era are probably very jealous. I'll just uh, say that. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> you you got to ask them. <laughs> just a couple of questions about the tournament this week here in Canada. How do Canadian tennis fans compare with fans around the world? You see them in, in cities everywhere. How do us Canadians compare in terms of uh, fairness and, and knowledge of tennis from what you uh, gather? To, just to start with, I love coming to Canada. It's uh, one of my favorite places, Toronto and Montreal both. Um, different cities, but offer a lot. Uh, and I, it's in both cities. And in, in a, I, I've been in other places in Canada and always felt uh, welcomed and uh, it's uh, it's a it's a great pleasure to be here. Your fans, if you ask me, one of the best in the world because they can create atmosphere, but they as well have a tennis knowledge, so they know what to do, when to do, and uh, yeah, it's a uh, that's why I say I, I love coming here. It's it's uh, it's good to be here, and uh, great that we actually finally have the spectators back. I absolutely agree on that one. And I have to say, you're saying all the right things to get asked one day again to come on this podcast, being that we're a Canadian podcast. So thank you for that great answer. No, thank you for actually uh, inviting me here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. I have two last questions before I let you go, and they're not tough ones. So here we go. If it weren't for being a chair umpire, what career do you think you would have pursued and, and enjoyed? Honestly, I have no clue. So this was it for you? Was tennis umpire or nothing? Well, at, at, when I was younger, I just wanted to see how far I can I can get. Uh, I just love it at the moment that I don't even think of doing something else. But I am aware that it's going to come a point where I'll have to decide for something else. So I guess I'll just wait for that moment to come. You got lots <laughs> of time to figure that one out. Yeah. What's the, um, well, we'll end on this one. What's the most rewarding part of the job for you? Or maybe there's a couple of aspects that you particularly enjoy in the role. At the end of the match, when, uh, you know, when you, when it's a tough match, it's a lot of close calls. Uh, it's a, it's a wild crowd. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's just a tough match. And then at the end of the match, if when players tell you great job, it's a, uh, that's something that's a, uh, that counts, really counts.
I'll bet. Well, Maria, thank you so much for taking the time today with us. I, I know you're not one to call for personal attention. I recall a moment in Toronto a few years ago where I asked you if I could take a picture for a website I was writing for, and you politely declined, which I totally understood, not wanting that personal uh, spotlight. But uh, thanks for shedding some light on the role you and your fellow umpires play. Um, it's a role I think not many people would, would want to try, um, but you do it so well and make it look uh, effortless the way you do it up in the chair. Yeah, thank you. And uh, one more time, thanks for inviting me to the podcast. And I hope uh, you guys enjoyed. Absolutely. Thanks so much. There you have it. Mike's interview with chair umpire Maria Chichak, giving us plenty of insight. And, you know, you acknowledge, obviously, her working the men's Wimbledon final. Like, there is a whole selection process in, in I think, determining what chair umpire is going to get that job. You know, it, it's not something that's random. You have to be at the utmost level in your sport, just like you have to be to, to reach one of these Grand Slam finals for the athletes. You have to be one of the absolute best in the business um, to be umpiring that final. And that's why she got that opportunity. Yeah, and, and long overdue, I have to say, and I mentioned that mm -hmm. in the interview as well, like what took so long for Wimbledon to have a female working the final, the men's final? Uh, we saw Eva Azdaraki Moore, who you mentioned earlier. She worked the uh, men's final at the U.S. Open in 2015, which, is, which was a historic moment at that point in time. And here we are, it took six years for Wimbledon to do the same. And, uh, you know, these female umpires are uh, just as good, and I feel like it, even more praise for the work they do than, than the men. I mean, Eva Azdaraki Moore, that final in 2015, she was impeccable. Uh, and we talked to her about that when, when we spoke with her a couple of years ago. She got everything right. And uh, that was before the electronic line calling now where there's no disputing calls. That was when there was, I mean, there was Hawkeye, of course, but every time one of the players challenged, boom, she was always in the right. And uh, I went back and kind of uh, re-listened to our previous interviews with her there is a connection between her and Maria Chichak. Um, they are friends. They get along well. And in that 2015 final, Eva Azdaraki Moore said, you know, she was nervous, whatever, and, and she knew it might be a long one. And she asked Chichak actually to bring her a coffee if she could beforehand. And uh, Maria Chichak brought her a, a double dose of coffee, like an extra strong one, which gave her the jolt that, you know, perhaps helped propel her to such a fine performance. So a little crossover between the two umpires that we spoke with there. And and we've had others on as well. So I, I mean, I hope people enjoy listening to it because I think both of us really enjoy the opportunity when we get it to speak with these uh, individuals. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I, I particularly loved um, her comment and, and we discussed this uh, at the front end of the, of the podcast, but her comment about specifically being invisible, which to me is um, the perfect sort of descriptor uh, for any umpiring job, whatever sport it might be. And uh, she kind of has that understanding that, the event and, and sports are about the players and the athletes that you, your best umpires, your best referees in the business, whichever sport it may be, you simply don't notice them. And um, I, I think that is the sense you get with her umpiring a match. It goes at the perfect pace. There's no types of controversies or incidents. Of course, they can crop up kind of any given match, any given moment, but uh, also her commentary on just um, patience and focus. Um, you don't think about what it actually takes mentally to say, be sitting in that chair for a match that goes, I don't know, four hours, five hours. And it is a serious grind. You, you can't, you can't take points off as they say, you have to be very, very sharp throughout. 
Yeah, you can't let your mind wander even for a moment. And no. I mean, heaven forbid you're having like a bad day or something. Like you just can't afford that in that kind of role. I think for most of us in our jobs and, and for those listening, I'm sure you'd probably agree. There's probably several times throughout the day, your work day, where you're not 100% focused. Your mind goes who knows where you're, you know, perhaps a little social media break, whatever, chatting with a coworker. Like you can't do anything when you're up in the chair. You cannot miss a single thing. Because that could be the moment where something big happens, obviously, and then, you know, the repercussions or, or what that does to your career moving forward. So if you're getting in the chair for a men's or women's Grand Slam final, you know that 99.9% of the time you're doing your job just absolutely perfectly. And I, I love that she said that she also feels that pressure, much like an athlete feels the pressure of you know, playing a big quarter or semifinal of a Grand Slam. She, she pointed out it is different than covering like a qualifying match where, say, you don't have that many fans in the stands. You, you have a, a serious atmosphere, a packed stadium. It is a completely different vibe. And, of course, she would feel those nerves and pressure just like an athlete would, um, which speaks, obviously, um, to, to how real and, and important this job is. And uh, she's obviously thrived in that role. I love what she said about Canadian tennis fans too. I think she hit the nail on the head because we have a lot of passionate fans. Maybe that comes from, from watching hockey for years and years too. But I, I feel like our tennis fans that do watch the sport, whether it's in Toronto, Montreal, or, or out West at, at events as well, we kind of get the pace of tennis of when to be extremely loud and intense and, and when to tone it down. Yeah. And, um, you know, to make that parallel with with hockey, of course, over the last year, there weren't as many fans allowed in NHL arenas. And yet I think we saw in the Stanley Cup uh, playoffs when my hometown Montreal Canadiens had just 2,500 or 3,500 fans, they could sound almost like 20,000 because they're so rabid and they're so into it. And I think it's the same with Canadian tennis fans, in particular at Davis Cup. Uh, I've been to a couple out west in Vancouver small arena on the UBC campus with only about 1500 in attendance, but it sounded like so much more than that. And, uh, you know, with players, sometimes I think they give lip service when they shout out to a certain country, all oh, the fans here are great. Oh, I love this country. Sure. I don't, I didn't get that vibe with Maria Chichak. I don't think she was playing up to our Canadian listeners. Um, so I felt it was a very genuine comment. And uh, as I mentioned to her, it means we're just going to have to have her back on again sometime. And um, she did say this was the first time she'd done a, a, uh, an interview via Zoom. Um, so it uh, reminded me a bit of when Jeannie Bouchard said we were the first podcast she ever went That's on. Right. Um, so we can just add this to our list, our claim to fame list, I guess, with uh, tennis personalities. And um, I, I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the toughest part of being a chair umpire, the toughest part of the job? That's, that's a good question. Um, first of all, I, I think... There, there's a vantage point where you're watching from a match as a chair umpire. And I, I've seen this come up a lot where a champ, chair umpire makes an overrule on a call in a spot that they probably shouldn't be doing so. You know, the far sideline side from across the court, do you really have the best vantage point to confidently say that ball was in or out? So I, I think the, the toughest part of the job is knowing when to insert yourself into the match in those scenarios. And 
I would add to that, knowing how to handle big, big personalities. There are a lot of different personalities on the tour. There's players who are going to be chatty and asking questions. There are players who are going to want to start an argument about something. And just one that comes to mind is uh, NBO Toronto, uh, Nick Kyrgios playing that first round match against Riley Opelka and, and starting up an argument about his foot, uh, Opelka's foot touching the net. It, it didn't seem to happen. And being able to hold your ground and not being intimidated by, you know, large young athletes, I, I think would be a serious challenge and trusting in your calls and, and what you're doing in the role. So, I mean, those are just a couple of, of a numerous things I would say. Um, yeah, what what I, about I, you? I can only imagine what those umpires are feeling on the inside, even though on the outside, they generally look so composed. Um, mine is sort of similar to your second point is just how do you handle those personalities in, in, on days where a player is, is not as mentally, um, you know, sort of, um, I don't know, at their best when they're obviously dealing with things, frustrations, anger. Uh, I'm thinking of like Vashik Pospisil that day that he kind of lost it and was really upset with the ATP, uh, you know, uh, chairman at, the, at that day and was, you know, venting and, uh, and letting those emotions out on court. How do you handle it when a player is, is on tilt, is, is rattled over something? Um, and I, I think, and some people might disagree that you've got to apply the rules all the time, exactly the same, that it's black or white, that it's either, you know, yes or a no. Uh, and I think you have to have some of that um, sort of give and take. And, and there's a gray area with, uh, with some things and some days and some players. Um, I, I know that that final between Osaka and Serena Williams at the U.S. Open a few years ago, some people thought Carlos Ramos handled it exactly how he should. Uh, myself and others felt like he lacked a serious sort of empathy uh, in that moment and could have sort of diffused that situation a little bit better. Um, and so I think that's probably, in my point of view, that the toughest part is, is how do you navigate those kind of days when a player is just clearly off, um, off their, their game a bit. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that match. That's exactly where my mind was going to, especially when you say like calling calling a match black or white. And, and I think that's probably the reputation of a chair umpire like Carlos Ramos. But maybe given situations and circumstances, it requires more nuance than that, which uh, he did not approach, obviously, that U.S. Open final that way. And people can still debate this one. But uh, I, I'm probably with you on on that opinion. Technology keeps changing, obviously, in this sport, and now it's it's just strange. And we lost the drama of the Hawkeye call of someone challenging and fans getting excited. Is it in? Is it out? And that now that's just gone. And presumably that would make a chair umpire's life easier, I gather. But you also can't just be firmly reliant on the technology and sort of sit back with your with your hands um, crossed and, and say, I don't, I don't have anything to do anymore. But um, it, it is unusual how much the sport has changed. Even if you go back to watching highlights from matches in the 70s, 80s or, or 90s, it's drastic. I, I almost think it's gone too far. I mean, I was all for Hawkeye and players having the ability to challenge in those moments, especially, you know, fifth set tie break or a match point or something, right? And how many matches back in the 70s and 80s were lost because of a poor call? Um, so, I, you know, I think Hawkeye was great. I think now with the electronic line calling, yeah, like you said, it's taken the fans out of it a little bit. It's taken that drama out of it. Um, imagine if we had that in the 70s, it would have robbed John McEnroe of all that inner inspiration <laughs> that he drew on to get himself so fired up in his matches. So, uh, I, I understand you want to be as accurate um, as possible and, and have the fewest number of errors possible in a, in a big time professional match. 
but also I think, uh, you know, can we not still have a little bit of fun with it and allow for some of that uh, drama and, and giving the umpires as well that ability to, um, you know, have a bit more say in those types of, of moments too. But um, I don't know, do we go back? I mean, I feel like the electronic line calling in part came out of COVID and not wanting extra people on the court, uh, just bodies being there. Do we ever go back? I wonder what's the next step or do they stick with it? Because it's not 100% accurate. Yeah, I, I, I don't see the change happening, to be honest. I, I think it's going to stay its course here. Uh, I preferred the challenge system. And you see that uh, Major League Baseball has a similar thing where it's it's obviously a manager opting to either challenge a call or not. And there's even some strategy in that uh, regard. And there was in tennis where you have three challenges per set. And ooh, do you burn one here on this call, which you're unsure of? Do you bother challenging a ball when you're down 40 love in a game? So I, I like that element to that. So I'm, I'm sad we're missing that. There's still the question of what do we do when we shift to the clay court season and we're relying on um, ball marks, which aren't always crystal clear. Hawkeye is not reliable on that surface either. So there are still some question marks in how the technology is used. I do like the challenge system I, I really don't see it going back though now that this has been established to be honest yeah possibly not um anyhow it was uh, again great thanks to maria chichak for joining us and and taking the time and i look forward to our next umpire interview and you know what i would love is is like running into a group of, of chair umpires like out at the pub or out at a restaurant or something like you walk in and you see like a group of like i don't know a half dozen of them and just to join or just to sit at a nearby table, I suppose, right? And and sort of just eavesdrop and listen in, be a fly on the wall, because they must have some great conversations. And, and when they let their guard down and talk about the players, which they must, right? Like any job, you 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 gossip or you you talk about some things like that that might not be as professional on the surface as as you know people might think they are. But uh, I just think it'd be a heck of a fun thing to listen in on their inner stories and and whatnot. And you know, you're forget sometimes they're people too right so uh i'm sure they got some great takes on some of the matches um that they've they've worked oh definitely and especially because they they can't really talk about players during the season if they're interviewed or asked questions they, they certainly can't mention players and what they think of them and their personalities so surely they have to have um some downtime where they share some laughs uh, more horror stories in some cases together um you're, you're certainly right about that you're listening to match point canada the official podcast of tennis canada we're also members of the tennis channel podcast network and thank you for uh, joining us here for our profile episode of chair umpire maria chichak uh, we will just wrap with some news um through this tennis week and uh, the big news that i did want to touch on and we've obviously talked about this subject before is uh germany's sasha zverev and his allegations and the atp has announced that they have opened an investigation i'll just quickly read a statement here an internal investigation into allegations allegations concerning Alexander Zverev at the ATP Masters 1000 event in Shanghai in 2019 is currently underway. The ATP fully condemns any form of violence or abuse and will investigate such allegations related to conduct at an ATP member tournament. Um, I, I guess my question for you is, is this good enough? Is it too little too late? Or, or how do you feel about this? Are you surprised? Uh, I'm going to use another cliche instead of too little, too late. How about better late than never? Um, although very disappointed that it took this long for them to come around to doing this, these allegations and the article that broke from Ben Rothenberg a while ago. I mean, that, that was quite a while ago. So many, many months to get to this point. 
uh, allowing the player to continue to to play. Um, even the timing of this one, I know a lot of people on social media are are giving some flack because well, they waited till after the Labor Cup. You know, of course, let him you know get that event out of the way first before bringing this up. So yeah, better late than never. At least it is being done, as opposed to them continuing to completely ignore it while promoting this player on their social media um, and other accounts. But, uh, but, you know, shame on them, I think, really. And I've said that before. We've talked about it before. You know, we feel pretty much the same way that uh, it just sends such a terrible message to all fans, not just female, but all fans, uh, when this is the way you're going to handle a serious, serious allegation like this. I, I will just read out as well Alexander Zverev's response portion of his statement um, to be fully transparent. Um, and, and, you know, we want to be a fair and balanced podcast as much as possible. So we should just say what Zverev said. Um, he did post the same statement saying, I've always been in full support of the creation of an ATP domestic violence policy. I welcome the ATP investigation in the matter and have been asking and have been asking the ATP to initiate an independent investigation for months as stated before, I categorically and unequivocally deny any of these allegations. He also goes on to say that um, with uh, his lawyers, they are um, looking at um, the publisher and the journalist, um, a, a court order by refraining from taking down the reporting and continuing to push the allegations on social media repeatedly. So um, he says his lawyers have initiated further proceedings on the journalist, which would be Ben Rothenberg in this case, and I believe the publication being Slate. Um, I don't think anything can come of that whatsoever, to be honest. Um, his efforts with his lawyer, um, you know, he can he can say he's for a domestic violence policy. Per, perhaps he is. I don't know if that's just to save face, but it, at least, you know, this is a topic that we're still discussing and Zverev is not in the clear here. And I, I think many fans um, around the sport and even media members, as we saw, for example, with Mary Carrillo the other week, are conflicted in how they're covering and, and feeling about this athlete. Yeah, well, again, it's just, you know, it's about time that, uh, outlets are starting to talk about it, whether it's you know ESPN or coverage at tournaments or whatnot. Because for the longest time, there was nothing said about it whatsoever. Like people were just what I don't know, too cautious or too afraid to to, to say anything on the matter. I, I really I I don't know. But uh, for the ATP, you know, I know Sasha Zverev isn't like one of their employees directly. Um, you know, as the players are all sort of independent contractors or what have you. But for the ATP to take this long to start an investigation, who knows how long it's going to take and, and what that even involves. Um, but especially this isn't the only male tennis player that's had allegations over the past couple of years. Um, and so really the fact that there isn't something formal in place when as soon as an allegation comes out, boom, we're going to act as an entity that governs this sport and we're going to start going through the procedures that we have in place. It's just so half-assed. So, you know, I guess that's all I've got to say about it right now. Um, but um, we'll see what comes of it. Yeah, I'll, I'll quickly add into world number 129. Tiago Seaboth Wild, Brazilian player, was also accused of abusive behavior um, just four days ago by his ex-girlfriend. And there, there was word of him potentially facing a domestic abuse lawsuit. So you think if they now have imposed an ATP domestic 
violence policy, that should be another player that's investigated, especially if this case just happened within the last week. Again, this is not a high profile player. It's a player that I think we know the name. Um, hardcore tennis fans know the name, but World 129 um, doesn't carry the same weight. But uh, if we want to be completely transparent and investigate these players, that's another case that uh, I think the ATP has to look into, especially if there's a lawsuit coming up. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely shouldn't matter whether you're a well-known player, whether you're a high-ranked player, it, it shouldn't matter. Whether yeah. you're the world number one player, it should be an automatic, you know, we, we start a case, we start an investigation, and, you know, maybe we stop rah-rah cheering for such a player and promoting them on our uh, Twitter feeds, on our Instagram feeds, and we just kind of pump the brakes on that until we know what's what. So, you know, that's it for me. Nothing else to say today on that matter. Um, ben, lead us into something positive to finish off here, um, something uplifting, maybe some Canadian tennis news that we can look at. We do have positive Canadian tennis news. And um, Billie Jean King Cup finals are upcoming in November. First of all, great news. The candidate is going to be competing with a chance. Um, they, they won their Billie Jean King Cup tie earlier this season, and they have announced their team of four, which I will announce U.S. Open finalist. Layla Fernandez is the headliner, and she'll be leading the squad in singles, and she'll be joined by Rebecca Marino, Gabby Dabrowski, and Francoise Abanda. I, I suppose some people are maybe a little bit disappointed Bianca Andrescu won't be joining for the Billie Jean King Cup finals, but... Uh, for me, this is still a very solid team. And, and the only element that's actually changed of the team compared to their tie earlier with Serbia in the spring is we have Francois Abanda stepping in and Sharon Fishman um, not healthy to go. But you still have Layla. Layla was the top player back in the spring, leading us to victory then. And how much better has she gotten now? So I, I see an opportunity for the Canadians. Well, just like you said in the intro there, um, you know, U.S. Open finalist Layla Annie Fernandez I mean, boom, that's right. She's a Grand Slam finalist. So not someone that other nations are necessarily going to be thrilled to face right now. It's no longer like, oh, this should be a you know, fairly routine match for us. Nuh-uh, definitely not after you know, the huge confidence boost, ranking boost, and, and after what she accomplished in New York, beating all those high-end players. So that's great that, that Layla is in the marquee position. Bianca, it's been a tough year, a lot of losses. Um, and as she mentioned in her statement about why she's not going, you know, want some time at the end of the year to uh, really work on her training, her fitness, make sure she's ready to go for 2022. And I think after all she's been through, uh, we can't hold that against her uh, one bit. Great opportunity for Rebecca Marino, who, uh, you know, has played giant killer at times this year. Gabby Dabrowski, who has been playing some of the best doubles of her career. I mean, this is a formidable squad. And Francoise Abanda, I wouldn't imagine, will likely see her playing in competition um, unless there's perhaps a, a dead rubber at the end. But also great to see her back in the mix. She's represented Canada many times in the past, missed quite a bunch of time uh, over the past two years during the pandemic from playing competitively. Uh, shoulder issues in the past have been an issue for her too. So just great to see her back part of the team. And uh, we wish them all the best. It's uh, I'm going to be really looking forward to seeing how this one plays out. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to to it as well. And um look for for my money, their their top singles player and their top doubles player. That's as high end as you get. Uh certainly with Layla Fernandez and the way she played at the US Open. If she's producing that level of tennis, she can absolutely beat anybody. And as you said, Gabby Dabrowski, the type of doubles she was playing this summer. Um, she was one of the best doubles players and is one of the best doubles players in the world. And Rebecca Marino, for me, is always that wild card who can produce a, a big win. We saw the run she produced in Montreal. And that ranking is heading back 
back up, I should say. She's inside the top 160, I believe 154 right now. So she's on a very good track. She's in qualifying in Indian Wells. So things are really um, moving in the right direction for her. And as you said, Francois Sabanda, haven't seen much from her this season, um, but we have seen good tennis from the from her in the past. So a nice opportunity. Thank you guys for listening to our latest episode of Matchpoint Canada. And thank you to Chair Umpire Maria Chichak for her time. Guys, we will talk to you next time. Yeah. I saw you dancing in a crowded room You look so happy when I'm not with you But then you saw me, caught you by surprise